No, I'm, I'm excited. As, uh, as I've been spending time in this text, I've gone from the, the emotions of excitement to fear, to, to excitement, to, to fear, and back and forth a lot. Um, like Paul said, this is, it's a difficult text, but I, I hope that the, that the worship that we've been a part of this morning, that it's getting you warmed up to be able to dive into the beautiful riches that is the, our love of Jesus. So um, we're in Romans 9. But one thing I want to do is kind of take a pause for a second. So we've been, we've been going through the book of Romans. So you started off with this beautiful thesis as Paul was beginning to show you about this righteousness revealed in Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For it is in the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So we saw these beautiful truths beginning in Romans 1 of how we all have suppressed the truth and we have all cr- begun to exchange the creator for the created. We see that the Jew has no advantage over the Gentile because that God is the God of all and that we have all fallen short because of not being able to keep that law. Move forward into the gift of righteousness, that next section that you guys went through where we see this, again, that truth that we have all fallen short of the glory of God and that God is the God of the Jews and the Gentiles. Yet again, there's these common themes that, are, that Paul's picking up and is continuing to go through. And the promise that the gifts don't come through that law, thank God for that, but through the righteousness of him who was perfect. You jump into the promise of the righteousness that you guys went through in, in chapter 8, where you begin with this, this beauty of there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And how it's through, through Jesus, God did what the law could not do, which is just that beautiful truth. And it all culminated in chapter 8 with, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And you jump down into verses 38 and 39 of chapter 8, where it says, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor depths, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. And the way that that reads, you almost just want to say, amen, pack it up. That's just beautiful. But the book keeps going. It's like one of those Jinsu knife commercials. Like, But, but wait, there's more. So we continue to like, turn the page and realize that there's even more amazing truths that God has in store for us. So that's where we are today as we kick off this new series that you guys are going to be spending the next several weeks, months, or however long it's going to be going through just the mystery of righteousness. So we've looked in the rearview mirror to see where we've come from. To give a brief teaser into where you're going, you're going to see these amazing truths about emphasizing the absolute sovereignty of God. You're going to see the purpose of Israel's unbelief and how Christ is the end of the law for all righteousness. You're going to see this beautiful role of missions the merciful purpose of God, and this great mystery of salvation for all, which even in Ephesians 3, 6, Paul says that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And the beautiful truth of that is, I'm assuming that there's nobody in here that is by blood Jewish, so we are the Gentiles. And it's because of that truth that we get to enter in. And so there's a, I don't know, has anybody ever seen the movie uh, The Usual Suspects? If not, it's not necessarily a movie I'd maybe recommend because there's language issues. I watched this before I was a believer, so we'll just kind of throw that in that category of my life. But there's, I remember watching this movie with my brother, 
And as we're watching it, we're both kind of too lazy to turn it off because we're watching. It's like, this is really boring. We don't know where this is going. But then all of a sudden, at that last moment, there's just this thing that happens where it's like, oh my gosh, that makes everything make sense now. That's what this mystery is. You, you see that even in Jesus walking on the road to Emmaus and Luke as he's walking with the disciples. And he begins with Moses and the prophets, and he unpacks the entire Old Testament that was all testifying to him. And we see going back to that truth in Genesis 12, where God's talking with Abraham, and he says that I'm going to make you a blessing to all nations, not just you. And so this truth from the very beginning was that God wanted the Gentiles, us, all believers, all people, to know and confess his name. So with that, I'd like you to stand with me for the reading of God's word as we read through the section we're going to be reading through. So starting in chapter 9, it's on page 945 in the pew Bibles in front of you if you don't have yours with you. Paul begins, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promise. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. This is the word of the Lord. So we've just come off this huge end of Romans, magnificent proclamation that there's nothing that can separate us. And we have this all of a sudden mood shift where Paul just begins to address the question that's probably on everybody's mind of, wait a minute though, if God's truths are so amazing and his promises are so great, then what about the Israelites? Where are they in all of this? If God didn't keep his promises to them, how can we trust that he's going to keep his promises to us? So he unpacks that as he gets into this. And he says that I have great sorrow and an unceasing anguish in my heart, which is just a beautiful picture of Paul's wrestling and his struggle for the people that he loves. He says that I wish that I were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. You guys realize the magnitude of the word accursed? There's only one other spot, there's others, but there's another spot that I can think of that Paul uses the same language. In Galatians 1, 6, and 7, if you know the backstory for the book of Galatians, there's false teachers that have come in and begun to teach a different gospel than what Paul had taught. And so in there, Paul's saying, I wish they were accursed that are teaching you these different things. He's effectively saying, if somebody else is teaching a different message, then damn them, because that's what accursed means. Let them be damned. He's using that strong language in Galatians, and he's also using that on himself. He's saying that, oh, if I could be damned for the sake of others that don't know Jesus, I would. 
you realize the, the, the depth of that? And, and why? For the Jews that hated Jesus, that killed Jesus, that hated Paul, and in multiple times were trying to kill Paul? In Paul's own words, in 2 Corinthians 11, we see him saying that five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people. These are the people that Paul is saying, I wish I could be cut off from Christ so that those people who the original promise was to could take my place. But we just got through Romans 8. We know that he can't do that because there's nothing that can separate us. But he still has this deep anguish of wishing that he can do that. And why do you think that is? Hey, I, th I think if we look back through, even in Luke 19, we see that Paul's spirit was the spirit of his master, Jesus Christ, that even as he was coming over into Jerusalem, knowing that they were about to arrest him, do false trials, and eventually kill him, Jesus' heart and his spirit wept for the people in Jerusalem, knowing that most of them were going to miss who he really was. And he wept. And I think that's what Paul is picking up, that same deep love and desire. There's a story. My, my wife and I were on vacation last year and had a chance to go to the Titanic Museum. And there's a story about somebody named Annie Funk. Annie Funk was a missionary serving overseas in India. And she received a telegram that her mother was sick. So she tries to figure out how to get back from India back to the United States to be able to spend time with her mom before she passes. And she ends up on the maiden voyage of the Titanic. After the, the ship hits the iceberg, Annie Funk had a spot on a lifeboat, and she willingly got off to make room for a mother and her child that she didn't know. She gave up her spot, which was going to guarantee her life, and she perished with 1,500 others for somebody that she didn't even know. And that, that's one extreme case, but as I was thinking through this even too, Right? My nephew was born with spina bifida and has never walked in a wheelchair his entire life. And I remember as I was in high school and uh, spent an entire summer babysitting him, and I just had started having this growing love and affection for my nephew and just this desire that, like, oh, like, if my nephew could even, if I could trade my walking for the rest of my life for my nephew being able to walk for a day, oh, I would do it. And I know that there's nothing that I can do to affect my ability to walk or to not walk. Or maybe this story might hit a little bit closer to home for some of us. I, my friend Sonny, I'd love to introduce you to him. He was born in China, and so he immigrated to the United States when he was four years old, and when he was in college, came to know Jesus Christ as his Lord and Savior. And he had this, this deep love for his family that did not know Christ. And I, just, I picture just the conversation between Jesus and Sonny one day where Jesus came to Sonny and said, Sonny, I have already died for your parents' sins. There's nothing that you can do about that, but... Would you be willing to die so that they will finally see me? And knowing that Sonny said, would have said, absolutely yes, sign me up, when and where. About two and a half years ago, Sonny died in a house fire. He's 25. His parents came in for the memorial service from Michigan and saw the impact that Sonny's life had made on so many other people. And they came atheists. And they left Sonny's memorial service, their son's memorial service, saying, we want to go back to Michigan and find a church to learn more about this Jesus that my son loved so much. 
And I know that if you could ask Sonny right now, is your death worth it? The fact that your parents finally met Jesus? He would say, absolutely, I would do it every day. So I want to ask the question of, does Paul's heart represent and describe me? Does it, does it describe you? I have to confess that it doesn't enough. Right? Do I anguish? Do we anguish for those that are closest to me? Maybe our, our extended family or our brother or sister or our close friends that don't know Jesus. Do, do we wrestle with this? Like, oh, Lord, like I would give up my place if it meant that this person could. What about people that are your enemies, like Paul is? He was willing to do that for people that hated him and despised him. And do we really like think about those that don't know Christ in such a way that do we anguish over people that are such great sinners? And if not, I think it's because we don't really consider ourselves sinners ourselves. I recently had the privilege of starting to work with the prison ministry through our church, and I've only been able to be there a few times, but it, it's been amazing going in and meeting these people that are just so broken and ready to hear the Spirit. And as I talk with other people, they say, like, well, why are you going there? And most people would look at it as a, a free guy going into a bunch of inmates to preach the gospel. But the reality is, apart from Christ, we're all imprisoned to sin, and we're all inmates in this world to sin. And so I don't see it as I'm going to speak to a bunch of inmates. I, go to, I, I see it as I'm going to speak to other people that don't yet know Jesus, or maybe they do, and hopefully I can encourage them and be able to move them along in their faith and just be able to paint this picture of this is the Jesus that the Bible talks about. And if it wasn't for my realizing the depths of my depravity, I would not be able to have a heart for people that don't know Christ yet. And so what about all these advantages that, that Paul begins to lay out? So if we continue in that section of verses 4 and 5, and we're going to reread that section, it says that they are the Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. So we see this list of things that he's laying out. And if you're a Jew, reading through that list up until you get to that last one, they'd be thinking like, yep, that's us. Then they get to that last one, and it's like, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're saying that Jesus equals God. We're going to have a problem with that one. We're going to table that just for a second, because I want to focus on us for a moment. Do we look at our upbringing and think that we have an advantage over another? My, my son that just led the group out, Friday morning as I'm trying to get the kids up to be able to come here even, he's like, oh, I don't want to get out of bed, Dad. And I was like, but Miles, you don't get it. Like, we're going to have real Chicago pizza tonight. <laughs> and he's like, oh, but Dad, last time we were there, I didn't really like it. I was like, oh, crushed. I'm fourth generation Chicagoan. And I've had my son for too long in Iowa in depravity and not knowing what real pizza is. And he doesn't even realize what he's been missing. So it doesn't matter how many generations of my family have been in Chicago, my son not growing up here does not have that appreciation for just real pizza. Now, in his defense, once we got here and had it, he was like, oh, this is so much better. <laughs> but what about other things, like more real things? Do we think that because we grew up in a church going home, we're better? Or we have something? Does that... 
do anything for us? Do we have, we have, yeah, we might have an advantage over somebody that did not grow up going to church regularly. That doesn't mean anything. Or what about having parents that were believers? There's a story of when my, when my dad's dad passed away in high, I was in high school. And I remember having a conversation with my dad and my brothers standing around my grandpa's coffin. And it was the first time that this concept of legacy had ever been introduced to me. And realizing that because my grandfather's father was a believer, he influenced my grandfather to become a believer, who influenced my dad to become a believer, who had an impact on me becoming a believer. So we have four generations back that we can trace that. But that in and of itself, while it is a blessing and we are all okay, we are all in Christ, means nothing for my sons and daughters if they don't themselves choose to make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior for them. So family heritage means nothing. Or maybe you grew up in a particular denomination. Um, when I was first introducing my wife to Paul and Laura, we were over having dinner at their house and uh, being good Dutch Reformed people that we are, 100%er. Yes, even though my wife denies that, I'm still going to claim that. So we're having dinner and Paul asks Brooke, he's like, so are, are you Dutch? And she's like, well, I'm a little Dutch. And jokingly he says, well, then you're partially saved. <laughs> but obviously we know that our heritage and the denomination that we grew up in is not going to mean anything. There's some advantages, depending on if it's a denomination that preaches the gospel versus is more liberal in the theology and might not actually teach the gospel. So there's, there's advantages there, but it counts for nothing apart from that saving grace. And so what about church attendance? Like I've got my stamp. I've been there every single time. Like those little star charts from when you were in Sunday school means nothing. Or the amount you give, it means nothing. What about baptism and the Lord's Supper that we're going to about to take here in a little bit? Apart from Christ, even doing those things means nothing. I remember I was in on a mission trip down in the Bahamas when I was in high school. And this is before, and, and for me, my story, college is where I really met Jesus. And so I was in the Bahamas on this mission trip, and I wanted to get baptized. So we were, they were doing Duncan baptisms in the ocean, and I was like, oh, this is going to be a great experience. Like, I'm expecting the clouds to part, and there'd be like this, the voice of like, oh, this is my one I love, and like I was waiting for the dove, and the, I got dunked. I came back up, and I was like, I still feel like the same idiot I was before. <laughs> that didn't do anything. Well, of course not, because I did that apart from really having Christ in my life. So baptism, apart from Christ, means nothing if we don't really love our Lord and Savior. So the only hope that means anything in us is the power of the grace of God that we receive through Jesus Christ. So, but I do want to take a second and go back through these advantages that they had, because these were real advantages, but the reality is that Jesus is better. So the adoption, Israelites were chosen, and this is the only spot in the New Testament that they actually use the word adoption referencing the Israelites in this way. But God chose the Israelites as his people in which he was going to bless the rest of the world. But in Jesus, we have a better adoption because Jesus is the way that the world is being blessed. He's the way that we're adopted in as sons and heirs of Christ, of glory. The, the Old Testament, the, the Israelites had this veiled glory that they would see God's power and presence coming in in this great cloud and the great presence of it, but it was veiled. And in Jesus, we have a better glory because we see him in his personhood of who he is. We see it at the, the transfiguration. We're going to see it again when Jesus comes back. And we have a greater glory in Jesus. But what about the covenants? 
The covenants were what made the Jewish people the Jewish people, but those were, especially the Mosaic covenant, a conditional covenant. If you love me, then I will bless you. But in Jesus, we have this unconditional covenant. That was God's plan all along. Jesus is the better covenant. In Jeremiah 31, 31, the Bible says that, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, and I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in Luke 22, 20, as Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, he says, And likewise, he had taken the cup after eating, and he says that this cup is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. So you see, we have a greater covenant in Jesus. And Jesus is a greater giver of the law. The Jews had the, the law that showed them what sin is. And then Jesus came in the, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 17. Jesus says that I did not come to abolish this law, but I've come to fulfill this law. In Jeremiah 31, 33, if we read a little bit further in that, it says that this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they shall be my people. So Jesus is the greater lawgiver. What about worship? The Old Testament was given the laws of how to enter into the presence of a holy God. But in Jesus, we have a greater worship because when he died on the cross, the, the curtain in the temple was torn from top to bottom. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says that the flaming sword guarding the way to the presence of God came down on Jesus and now the way is open. So we have a greater access through worship. The Old Testament was given the promise of the coming Messiah, but Jesus is the greater promise because he was the Messiah. And the promise that he gives us now is that if I go and prepare, prepare a place for you, I will come back again and get you. So in Jesus is the better promise. Well, what about patriarchs? The Jews might be thinking, well, we had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in our lineage. They were fallen men that God chose to still use for his purposes. Jesus was there in the beginning, and he is the one that through him and through every, everything was created. Colossians 1, 15 and 16 says that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, and all things were created through him and for him. So we're left with that picture of through you is where Jesus came from. So we're left with this question of what are we going to do about Jesus then? Paul's using some really strong language he's here. He's saying that Jesus equals God. I'm not leaving this up for debate. This is not a conversation about was he a moral teacher? Was he a prophet? Was he this really great guy that had a following? The Bible does not leave that open for discussion. Paul is saying that Jesus equals God. So what are we going to do about that? If we are unwilling to accept that Jesus is the greater way, then we are still dead in our sins and in our trespasses. We have to go back through and reread all of Romans 1 through 8 to show us our, the, the fallenness, the depths of our depravity apart from Christ. So Jesus is that greater way. And there's really no way to do this for awkward transition here as we jump into this next section of the great promise is that the true Israel was chosen through election. And so as we look in 9.6, Paul says that it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. 
So it might be a little confusing. We've got like two different Israels. So what are we talking about? Who is this Israel? Well, the first Israel is talking about Jacob, the actual guy that God wrestled with him and changed his name, that your name now shall be Israel, which means wrestles with God. Matthew 3, 9, John the Baptist, as the, the religious leaders are questioning him of who are you and by what authority are you doing these things, they're kind of puffing themselves up of like, we're from the line of Abraham. And John the Baptist comes back and says to them, and do not presume to say that you yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So even that really means nothing apart from Christ. And the second Israel that is mentioned there is that true Israel of those that remained faithful to the covenant relationship with God throughout the history of the Old Testament. So then we might ask, what was required to be a true Israelite? Well, in the Old Testament, it was, sorry, you go back. So in the Old Testament, the Jews had to look forward towards this unknown Messiah, this unknown king. One more, I think. No, is there? Anyways, don't worry about it. I think that one might not be in there. So in the Old Testament, the Israelites had to look forward to this coming Messiah, this coming promised one, but they didn't know exactly what that was going to look like. And so there's this kind of this, this cloud around that, this big question mark of this coming king, this coming Messiah. But in the New Testament, we don't look forward to this unknown thing. In the New Testament, we're able to look backwards at the cross, at what Jesus Christ did, and the ability to be able to see that in Jesus, all things are new. All things are different because of the one that came to save. But Paul begins to unpack this whole idea of this divine election and talking about who the Israelites were and what their intention was. And so he starts with verses 7 and 8. Or I'm sorry, he starts with Abraham talking about how Abraham was chosen by God. So Abraham was not seeking God, but God sought out Abraham. And so every Jew in one way or another would have had to acknowledge that God's original purposes started with election because it was not Abraham. It was God choosing Abraham in that. But then you can kind of, there's that whole caveat that somebody might say, well, yeah, well, yeah, but God had to start somewhere, so it may as well have been Abraham. Okay, well, let's go the next generation deeper, as Paul does. In, in verses 7 and 8, it says that not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So what that's referring to is we have this big, amazing promise of God promising Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations. But Abraham and Sarah were impatient. Didn't really, they were like, all right, God's promised this. We're not sure when this is going to happen. So Abraham and Hagar happen. Along comes Ishmael. And that was not God's plan. That was the offspring of the flesh. But the offspring of the promise was Isaac, that God had promised that through Sarah, I'm going to give you a son. So Isaac was the son of the flesh, or I'm sorry, Ishmael was the son of the flesh, while Isaac was the son of the promise. So we trace that back through again, and well, if there's another argument that somebody could make, well, saying, well, yeah, well, obviously, because Ishmael wasn't full-blooded Jew, because he wasn't from Sarah, which I'd like to throw in the caveat, if there was no such thing as a full-blooded Jew at that point, the Jews didn't exist. It was just Abraham and Sarah and their little family. But we take it that step further, and we go into Jacob's. 
So verses 10 through 13 again, he says, And not only so, but also when Rachel had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So then what, what, how do you explain this one away then? Apart from this is just God being God. Because there's three really big things here that happen that change the whole argument. So one, Jacob and Esau were born of the same Hebrew parents. So this is not the case of Jacob being chosen because of a better genealogy or a better lineage. The choice of Jacob and Esau went against the entire culture's firstborn aspect of the firstborn is the one that carries on the family lineage. So God flips that upside down. He says, no, 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 I've got a different purpose, and I'm going to show you that this is my purpose. By choosing the younger to serve the old, or by choosing the older to serve the younger, and the younger being the one that through the blessing to continue. And even crazier, we see that this choice of Jacob over Esau was made when they were in the womb, before they did anything, good or bad. A couple of my little kids that were up here running around are twins. We loved them both. We didn't choose one over the other to like better. We didn't know anything about them yet, but God did. Just like in this case, he knew Jacob and Esau, and for his purposes, he chose to take Jacob as the one that he was going to put the blessing through to show that it is his divine glory. So in that, we see that God's choice of an individual always includes his purpose for that person to be his instrument in the world. And in Galatians 1, 15 and 16, Paul's even talking about his own calling. He says, but when, we had, but when he who had set me apart before I was born in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. So even Paul recognized that his calling was not, oh, hey, there's this guy going along the road to Damascus. He'd be a good one. God had picked Paul before he was even born to be the one to take the message to the Gentiles. So really we have to recognize that we are not God. We don't get to choose that. We don't have a saying in how God operates and how God works. So while sometimes his purposes to us might seem backwards and we might not get it, it's ultimately his purposes that are the ones that he's presenting to us. So oftentimes people are like, well, when I get up to heaven, I'm going to ask God this question. Why? You're going to be in God's presence. Like, that's going to be amazing. And you want to ask him why this thing here happened and you weren't happy with it? Like, come on. Like, let's look at the ridiculousness of that. Like, this is God. It's his universe. It's his plan. So there's this little word in here called election. Well, what is that then? Well, Wayne Grudem puts it this way, if you want to get into some super heady, deep, systematic theology. He says that election is an act of God before creation in which he chooses some people to be saved, not on account of any foreseen merit in them, but only because of his sovereign good pleasure. He kind of unpacks that a little bit more where he says that election to us should be a comfort and it's a reason to praise God. It is an encouragement to continue to evangelize and it is unconditional. It's not by what we've done, but it's God choosing us. So with that, then we might ask questions like, well, why me? 
Why was I one of the elect? What about them? Why are they not part of the elect? Are my friends not part of the elect? Like, I don't, I don't get this. Like, I wrestle with this. I don't, I don't know. Does this give us an excuse to sin then because we are the elect? It's like, well, God put his seal on us. We're good, right? No. Paul already addressed that. And he said, by no means. That's not the purpose of election. So does it then give us an excuse to ignore people? No, by no means. See, because you and I don't know who the elect are and aren't, but God does. So we have to treat everybody as if they're the elect that has not heard yet. And maybe God's purpose for you is reaching those people that have not heard his name yet. Because God works through the church, which is you and I, not this building. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, I still have a lot of questions on election. And I know that Paul usually averages about 42 minutes, like an average TV show. I don't think he has time to wrap this whole thing up. And I don't. Which is why you're going to have to come back next week to find out more about this whole God's purpose of election. But I would love to take a minute and just pray for Missio Day as a church. Because as Paul says, our, we were here at the beginning of Missio Day, and every time I think of you as a church, I think of you fondly and I pray for you. And we miss being a part of this community because this has been a great part of our lives when we were here. So oftentimes when I'm thinking about you as Miss You Day Church, my heart just breaks in, in a great way and just of encouragement knowing that God is doing some amazing things through you. So let me pray for God's word just to continue to flush over us as we enter back into this time of worship.